mass incarceration in the U.S. is the great tsunami that has ripped apart families and destroyed communities. At the epicenter of this destruction are the children of those incarcerated. My name is Ebony Underwood. I am the founder CEO of We Got Us Now. We Got Us Now is the first of its kind, national, nonprofit, nonpartisan organization built by, led by, and about children and young adults who have been impacted by parental incarceration. These are our stories. So I am in Chicago. I'm here with Larry Hoover Jr. I'm here excited to talk to you today about you and your experience and your resiliency and your strength to be the face for your father. I know all too well what this experience is like. And so wanted to highlight and uplift you and your story because I think it's a powerful one and it's an empowering one. And what I've often found is that men and young men and boys are sometimes really challenged to share about this experience. I find so many young women that want to be able to talk and they are like a force to be reckoned with when they do speak, right? But oftentimes it's challenging to find young men and boys and people that are male that want to speak about this. So because you have been this force to be reckoned with around, you know, advocating for your father, I felt like, wow, who better than you that I should be talking to around this experience because I know it could potentially be really, really inspiring to so many young people, especially our young black boys who need to know that they're not alone in this experience, right? And advocating and to never give up. So let's talk about it. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your story. My father went to jail when my mother was pregnant with me. And that began my life of going back and forth to the jail as if it was a regular part of my life. Did you know you were going to prison or to jail? Not at first. First it was the zoo, then it was school, mm. you know. So finally I got of age a little bit and realized that this was the jail. And it was a regular part of my life. I did it so much. It was, felt like it was every weekend that I was going to the state prison. When you went to the state prison and you found out that your father was in prison, like how was that experience? Did people talk to you like outside of like, were you in school when you went to school? Did anybody tell you about your father being in prison? Like what was, what was your experience? I don't know if the other kids around my age you know. I didn't tell anybody my father was in prison. You know, I just kind of went to school and when kids talked about their parents, I just talked about my mother. I didn't speak of my father. I mean, it was times when I was uh, younger, I used my mother's maiden name. When I started finding out who my father was, I was getting a little older and not really knowing anything about the streets or if it was a good or a bad thing. It was times where to be safe, I would use my mother's maiden name instead of my real name because I didn't know what type of situation that would put me in. When kids talked about their fathers, I just didn't talk about mine. You know. When did you find out, like, okay, this is this is serious? Like, when did it hit you? At what age? Fifth, sixth grade. Oh, that young. When I started riding my bike going up to the game room and stuff like that, and my brother's friends and older people saying, that, oh, that's little Hoover right there. Mm. You know, wondering, like, what is that? But seeing that it was something. 
You and know. what did that make you feel like? What what happened when you heard that? What were you thinking? Did you ask? Did you ask your mom, or did you ask? Do you have siblings? Did you talk to them? I didn't. Ooh. I just kind of grew into seeing as I got older, different people that were home had respect and love for my father. Right. You know. Right. right. Then I started hearing titles and what have you. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then it all came together over time. And all this time, you were still continuously seeing your father inside when you were younger. Yeah, I was always going to see him. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And we're going to get into more of this, but I remember listening on the album, on Kanye West's song, um, Jesus Lord, you said when you was in eighth grade, mm -hmm. they told you that your father was coming home. So tell me about that. Well, it was actually before eighth grade. So this was, you know, the goals that I was looking forward to. Oh, by the time you graduate, you know, I'll be getting out. And it just had me on um, looking forward to dates, thinking that something was gonna happen. You know, those dates would come and nothing ever happened. Even when he would be going to the parole board and it looked like something positive was happening and the community was getting behind him. and. You know, some of the different things he was doing at home in the community, it was the day never came. Wow. You know, still waiting on it. Wow. So how old were you when your dad left the state prison and actually went into the federal prison? I was probably around 21. I was still in college at the time. They had him here because okay. he was going to court. They hadn't charged him at that point. Okay. You know, they had just grabbed him. He was going through this federal court thing here in Chicago. I just want to articulate to our audience, um, you know, we got us now, we like to unravel what has been like seen as this really monolithic issue. When they talk about children of incarcerated parents, they talk about it as if there's only children under the age of 18. We got us now has made an effort to make sure that people understand that there is no magic button at 18. If your parent is incarcerated like you since birth, that all of a sudden you're not okay once you turn 18 and everything is fine. As a matter of fact, it becomes even much more impactful because of the way that your father has been incarcerated over your life. My dad was in federal prison for the entire experience. I traveled all across the country. When you have a parent that's in state prison, they're in the same state as you. You may, if it's not you know a big state or so much of a big state, it may not take that long to actually go see them. Tell me. First, he was close. In Chicago? Yeah, he was close. He did Joliet, he did Stateville. That was probably an hour, hour and a half. Okay. Having hopes that he was coming home, he went to Vienna, and this was a place where you go to when you're supposed to be close to being released. Okay. That was six hours away. When you have a parent that's in jail, mm -hmm. that's usually a county jail, so that's a completely different experience than having a parent that's in state prison like you just described, right? They can be as close as an hour away, or your experience also driving one way, six hours mm -hmm. to visit. <sighs> the visiting time never changes. <laughs> so it's eight to three. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, if you gonna have a full visit, that might mean if it takes six hours to get there, that y'all gotta leave at like two, three o'clock in the morning just to make sure that you could have a full visit. And a full visit meaning the whole entire day. It, and it costs money to do that. 
It costs money for the car. It costs money for traveling. And don't forget about the food when you're in there. Oh, it's a trip. And gas. Like, come on. Right? Yeah, it's a trip every time. So you've had your father in state prison. Mm -hmm. And by the time you turn 2021, he now is headed to federal prison. And not only is he headed to federal prison, he is in the highest maximum security prison in the country. Tell us about the difference in the experience of visiting your father in state prison versus going now to Colorado at ADX, which is a prison where you're incarcerated for 23 hours of the day. And then when you do get a visit, what is that like? It started off, like you said, with state prison and we traveled an hour, hour and a half. Then it went to the state jail or the camp or what have you, and that was six hour drive. So then we moved to Colorado and now it's a three hour flight. Then you have to get a rental car. You have to drive an hour and a half, two hours to Colorado Springs. Then you have to get a hotel room to get up in the morning to drive to Florence, Colorado, which is another hour away. Drive up in the mountains, you go to Florence, they check you in, That you go through the guardhouse, you drive through the campus because it's a campus with like six in institutions on the campus. Mm -hmm. But he's in the max, so he's in the top security in the back down there, up under the hill. You go in there, they check you in, they see if they see anything wrong because they will turn you around. You go in, you go down into the basement, you go through all the the gates and doors and walk down the long halls. So is it underneath the ground? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's underground. So you come in at one level where they check you in and, you know, search you and send you through the scanners and take whatever you have in your pockets. When you go through the, when they open the door to take you to the back, you walk down a, like a flight of stairs. It's, it's gotta be about at least 16, 20 feet high the stairs that you go down, you mm. go down, you go through more doors and doors and walk down the hall to the back and you go in the room and they tell you which booth to sit at. And it's a booth with concrete walls on both sides. So it's a row of booths. It's all concrete walls separating the, the booths. But it's a visiting room, so it's open and you go sit in between, it's a glass there with a concrete slab and it's a phone. So when he comes out to visit, you know, he comes, he comes in and he stoops down because he has the handcuffs on and he sticks his hand through the hole and they take the handcuffs off and then he comes and picks up the phone. His side is pretty much the same as your side, but it's a door behind him instead of the room that's behind him, you know? You talk on the phone. It used to be two phones in there, so if it was more than one person visiting, you could have a phone and he could talk to more than one person, but now they changed it to where it's only one phone, so now you have to pass the phone back and forth, hold your head together. It interferes with them taping the conversation, and now it's uncomfortable. It was already uncomfortable, but it's even more uncomfortable. You may have two, three people there, but one phone. Mm. You gotta pass the phone around. 
And how long is the visit? Is it the same visiting hours or no? Yeah, it's 8 to 3. They usually put you out before 3 o'clock. You never get your full 8 hours and you have to be there before a count or after count because if the count comes, then they're not going to let you in. Mm -hmm. and so three hours on the plane, mm -hmm. then an hour and a half to get to your hotel. Right. Then an hour to drive. Right. Then to go there and to have to go through this whole experience of going inside. Mm -hmm. And you didn't do nothing wrong. You didn't do nothing wrong. Why do you have to go through this? And then if you just are not abreast of a rule or something that they don't agree with, they will turn you around. Has that happened to y'all there? <laughs> yeah, there's things that happen. They put you on restrictions. When my daughter was a child, she had a cell phone. We told her to leave your phone in the car, but she had a phone in her pocket. Oh. So we got down there and then she realized that she had a phone. She didn't tell us. She went and told the people, oops, I, I brought my phone. So then they took her phone and went through it to see if she was recording and doing all that other type of stuff. Then they kicked her and my mother out and put them on restrictions what for six that? months. No visiting? No visiting. My son, they tried not to let him in because his pants had a flag sewn in it, but it was just part of the outfit. You know, that was some but you say admonishments on the clothing and uh they said it could be gang related and we had to tear his pants up so he can go in depending on the people that's there if a woman has like a bra or underwire you may be refused you know so it's all type of rules that they may decide to follow at the moment that could mess up your visit we usually get in but you know just to know that you under that stress to follow the rules is like it's rough. And you've been doing this for the last 26 years. Yeah. How often do you get to visit there? I'm gonna say we go at least every three months, but then when the winter time comes, then we don't really go because we don't want to get stuck in oh, one of right. those storms out there in Colorado. Right, has that happened? Has that ever happened? Did y'all, were you aware of that? You know, the first storm that I was Therefore, was actually this past, maybe February or March. Yeah, it was full of snow on the ground. When we got there, my mother was still gonna go see her husband. That's right. So she looked out the window and I'm looking like, I guess we might not be going in. And she's looking at me like, let's go. So your parents are still married? Yeah. Wow. So they've been together. They were recently able to get married. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it's two years now. But they've been together your whole life, as long as he's been there, since before he's been there, right? Mm -hmm. You painted a, a really um, incredible picture of what this experience is like, that I don't think that most people really understand, that he is in concrete, right? Mm -hmm. Down 20 feet, underground 20 feet, mm -hmm. that he probably has never seen the sun in the last 26 years, or even the sky in the last 26 years. He definitely doesn't get to look out. They are supposed to be able to go out to wreck, but it's a cage. So if he does take his hour to go out or, you know, before COVID, I, I guess they would take people 
stuff. So if it's too cold, he's not going out. And then during COVID, they're not moving people around because uh, it's COVID. You know how COVID affects the world. Were you able to visit at all during COVID? For maybe a year of it, we couldn't visit. And is it different now that COVID has been in place? Well, you have to call before you go. Oh, you have to call? And make an appointment instead of just knowing that he has visits and you show up because right. he has visits. You have to make an appointment and you oh. have to, you know, tell you that it's okay. Oh my goodness. Not call though. You got to email them or call? No, you call. And somebody answers? They don't be well, usually the they call you back. You have to call this counselor. Oh, okay. So you have to keep trying to call the counselor. Then the counselor returns the call. Okay. You make an appointment. They tell you if it's an issue with you coming at that time and what have you. Okay, let me ask you this. How old is your dad? He's 71. He'll be 72 this year. Wow. And it has been nearly 50 years that he has been incarcerated. Um, how is he doing? How is his spirits? For his situation, his spirits are pretty good. You know, he um, definitely wants to come home, but he definitely has to deal with the fact that he could possibly never come home. He's cautiously optimistic. That's his time. Oh. You know, I think he put that on me and it interferes with my life in the free world. So like I said, I was waiting for my father to come home. I don't see things like everybody else see it as far as you gotta believe it and you gotta, and it's like, I want it to happen. And I know it's possible that it could happen, but I'm always looking at, it's a chance that things won't happen. It's hard for me to buy into something that's gonna happen because I always know that there's been things that I've been looking forward to that haven't happened. Okay, that's a great segue into how have you remained this at this point? Because it's been a long time, literally your entire life. How have you remained like connected to this? What has been the thing that has helped you to, to keep going? To, how have you been coping? Well, for one, just having that relationship, seeing that that our relationship wasn't separated. My father has always been in my life. I think he made efforts to keep us on good terms, like where he probably could have fathered me rougher or he didn't really do that because of the situation. You know, understanding that he was there and I was here. You know, coincidentally, as a kid, I said I was gonna be a lawyer so I could get my father out of jail and that never happened, but found myself in this situation advocating for my father. So I guess this is the lawyer for me, you know, trying to help my father. I mean, it's just been my life. I don't, right. you know, I don't know another life. As long as my father is alive and he's there, anything that we can to try to, um, you know, bring him home. The fact that you have now decided to do this publicly and in the process of doing it publicly you were able to I guess garner some attention from it like some big attention yeah let's let's talk about that how did that unfold what happened I'll say Kanye took some interest in the family seeing that he came from Chicago he knew who my father was he knew 
of a lot of the positive things that he did for people in the community. So his believing in God, he felt like it was the right thing to do to try to, you know, try to help my father. And he felt like he had the opportunity to try to do something for him. He came into the picture. You just got a call from Kanye one day? Well, I have friends that were in the music industry oh, that okay. have been around Kanye. You know, oh, some of, okay. Some of the guys. Okay. So along with what he knew from growing up here in Chicago, you know, he had some of those guys that believed in my father. Right. Like you got more than one side of my father. You got what he came from and what he grew into. And okay. there's people that also came from that and believe in what he grew into and that's the way they live their life. And what is that? What did he grow into? Tell, talk about it. Into growth and development. You know, I fight to talk about that because it's a real positive thing. And, you know, I'm the poster child of growth and development, the way that I live my life, the way that I carry myself. And this is what my father was trying to teach to others. And, you know, with people around Kanye, showing them what, you know, about positive energy and the positive things to be doing in life. You know, it was just all part of him saying that he wanted to, um, you know, insist on trying to get my father free. Mm. So he's just been sticking in there with making awareness and helping with attorneys. You know, he's, he, you know, he's been in the fight. He went to the White House and, you know, he's just been a, a huge part of the fight. He helped put me in a visible situation. It gave me a bigger platform to speak on my father and to get past some of the people that just all had something negative to say, to get to some people that really looked at the situation like, wow, this is crazy. He's in there serving a two, three life sentences for a non-violent crime, mm. you know, living in an inhumane situation, you know, living 23 and one. You know, it just kind of gave me the opportunity to let people know because they didn't know that, you know, he's in there not for being a murderer. They keep saying that he's a murderer, but that it's a nonviolent drug crime that the majority of the people on this case have been released from with the exact same charges, but it's up to the, up under the judge's discrepancy. So Kanye basically just gave a platform. He put it out there so that the world can see and know what's going on and understand and know that is it the justice system or the injustice system? Like we really need to be aware of what's going on to fight for the justice system to be fair because it's, you know, it's unfair. Not that my father um, was innocent of any crimes, but if you serve your time, your, your time should be served. They can't, they shouldn't hold you because of your reputation or who they feel you are. If black and white says that you did this and this warrants this type of punishment, after the punishment is done, it should be over. They shouldn't be able to um, hold you responsible for what they think you are going to do. They owe you the opportunity to, you know, try it again out in the world. Mm. Wow, that's really, really, really powerful. Um, and really about what's happening currently in, in this moment in time. In 2022, there are some bills that are um, being um, brought to Congress's attention so that uh, people can get a second chance and a second look. Mm -hmm. Because we know that people that are elders 
American father being 71, going to turning 72 in 2022, people age out of criminality. Crime is apparently a young man's game. Yes. I'm not just making this up. This is data and facts that um, advocates and researchers and criminologists have all found to be true. And so as an elder um, that has children, grandchildren, and a loving wife who wants him and needs him home, it's time for him to come home. It's definitely time. It's time for him to come home. Like I said, he's 71. He'll be 72 this year. For the most part, his life is gone. You took his life. Right. Their goal is to take his whole, his physical life. Mm-hmm. You know, send him home in a box. And that's what we fight against. Mm-hmm. For them not to come home in a box. They send people to these places to drive them crazy so that mentally they, they die. Like we said, it's inhumane. You know, they want to kill them some type of way, mentally, physically, they don't want to give them an opportunity to come back to the world. Mm. And, you know, they refuse to look at its attributes to society. Right, you said that even people that have come home have talked to you, that have experienced being inside with him, have spoken to you about how he has encouraged and supported them and kept them on the straight and narrow once they came home. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a lot of people that came home and changed their life around. You know, people he... Mentored inside. Yeah, he mentored and told them that, you know, I don't want to see you here. Like, he seen what influence he had, and he would use his influence to lead people on the, on the right path. He had already spent more time in jail than <laughs> most people had still as a young man. So that kind of helped him make some of the changes when he was seeing people coming in jail. And they were my age, you know, he like, this could be my son. This is my son's friends. Like, we gotta, um, you know, cut this out. When he seen that the police were in the projects, taking people out of their houses, searching their houses as if they were um, searching cells. He's seen that. He like, they treating them like they treating me and I'm in jail. And he do he had influence to get the people together to do something against that. He was using his power to try to do good and get people a different outlook and have people fight for their rights. But anytime it's a black man that's bringing people together, it could be seen as a negative. I'm not gonna say that it is every time, but it seems that way. And, you know, that's a part of his problem that he has had the power to bring people together. And, you know, you know how they see us if we, you know, if you're powerful and you can organize and you can bring people together. But he's been away from organizing for over 20 years. They know that he's disconnected from the people that's out here in the world. I was about to say, he's been so disconnected just from human humanity, right? Yeah. Just like from a, a human experience. To be in a concrete cell every day. I haven't touched him in 20 plus years. His grandchildren have never touched him. Never been able to give him a hug. Never. My mother hasn't touched him. My wife has met my father, but she has never hugged my father. You know what I mean? He's never hugged and kissed his daughter-in-law. I mean... Or his grandchildren. Yeah, none of them. Oh, man. So going back to um, 
hearing about you, me, coming into learning about you. The first time I, I really heard about you, I never knew, I, I've heard about your dad. I never knew he, you, he had a namesake. I didn't know he had a son. The first time I heard it, I was on a drive, a long drive, three hour drive going up in New York, going upstate New York. And um, we decided to listen to Kanye's album because it just came up. And we're listening to the album. I had no idea. Now, this I'm, at this point, we got us now as in existence. I'm doing the work. Right. So I'm here, and all of a sudden, I hear you talking and talking about your experience. And at this point, my dad wasn't home. So I'm like, oh my God, who is this? Mm. He has my same story. And he's saying, he has the platform to say it. I need to meet this person. This is incredible. Because it's so true. Everything that you said was so true. And that you had the platform to do it. And it was such a beautiful, that album, first of all, I believe is one of the best albums because it was all an ode to spirituality. Mm -hmm. And this song that you were on, Jesus Lord, was actually even nominated for a Grammy. The album was nominated for a couple Grammys. We got snuffed, you know. <laughs> I, I think that um, you know, it don't even matter. Yeah, we got stuffed, but the, the but nomination. it was it was a it was a beautiful situation for Kanye to give me the opportunity to, you know, talk about my story. I didn't know what to put on there when I when I did it. What up, yay? This Larry Hoof Jr. First and foremost, I want to thank you for taking the fight for my father to the old office. You know, to me, it kind of feels like me, my mother, my brothers, and my kids have all been incarcerated through this journey. And we haven't even been to jail. We have been looked at and treated as criminals for being a part of this family. I just tried to um, talk from my heart, mm -hmm. you know, let people know what was going on. Mm -hmm. It came out to be a good thing. It touched me. I'm telling you. I was like, oh my God, have you heard of my organization? How did, what the heck? <laughs> no, we didn't have any connection. It was just that it's this lived experience that we all have. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like, yeah, that you being on there is why we're here today. Yeah. Like, that was a powerful piece. And thank God for that because. I do believe that, you know what, that your dad will come home because of the fact that it's been so long, it's inhumane. I am on the board of the Sentencing Project and the Sentencing Project, the past executive director, he wrote a book called The Meaning of Life. And the reason why it's called The Meaning of Life 20 Years is enough is because as researchers and data experts, what the Sentencing Project did was go across the planet to see how the rest of the world was incarcerating people. And what they found is that for the most heinous crimes, that the maximum amount of time that they would give across the planet mm -hmm. was 20 years. So why, why in the United States, when we know and have seen across the planet the success of just giving somebody 20 years, and not doing it in an inhumane way. Why are we doing it so inhumane? What is punishment? What are we defining as punishment? What is safety and justice? There's data and facts to say that elders 
age out of criminality. Your father no longer needs to be there. Your father is not going to do what he did. People deserve second, third, and fourth chances. People deserve to be able to get a second chance. And so, you know, as a son, to have the courage, because it can be re-traumatizing every time you share this story, I know all too well. Yeah, I, I agree that um, people do deserve that. And like you said, that song gave me the, the platform. I had spoke on my father, but not on the level that I had. And I've been in situations, but that song pushed me in deep water and I had to swim. There's no turning back. You so swim. it is what it is now. I, I mean, I'm glad to be here and be able to. You know, like you said, I was a little nervous about doing it and getting out there because it's a lot of backlash that comes with just the name there so so how do you feel now how has that experience been what's what's happened it's a great experience i feel like it's a purpose you know so i'm just who my father is i'm what he made i'm a product of him that's right and i don't think i'm a bad product i could be better everybody could but i similarly said the same about me and my dad and so many other daughters and sons that are fighting for their parents to come home feel the same way. A lot of times there is shame, stigma, and trauma from this experience, and most people don't want to share about it. Children of incarcerated parents are a historically invisible population because of that. And when we do show up, it's because of the love, number one, the love that we have for our family and for our parents mm -hmm. and for our whatever parent that is that is incarcerated but also because of what they poured into us, right? Because they were present parents. Like basically what you're saying is that your father was always there regardless of the wall that stood between y'all. He was all, he is there for yeah. you. That's just a powerful, powerful thing. I hope to have the opportunity or the voice to, you know, try to pour into, you know, you've coming behind me as far as, it's not a rite of passage to give your time to the government and the federal and the, and the state prison systems. And I'm getting this from my father who a lot of people have looked up to, some looked up to him for the right reason, some for the wrong, but you know, want to pass his message. This is what he wanted to get to society. So his name was tarnished, mine is not. So I should be able to get that message. That should be his gift. That should be his legacy. The fact that he was an example and he was trying to not make people be the same example that he was. You know, they give people opportunity to live their life, be with their families and grow and develop into um, strong men for, their, for our communities. Have you talked to young people? Do you have the opportunity to do that? A little bit, it's growing. Like this, all of this helps me get the opportunity. Before it was kind of like uh, that name, a few people like, yeah, we want, we want it, but then they kind of like, I don't know it's that name. So now it's, the opportunities are coming more and more, you know, mm -hmm. now that it's okay to be associated with Larry Hoover. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Larry Hoover Jr. I want to ask you, is there anything else that you want to share? Is there anything that you want to share with the um, with the audience? Are there things that you, you feel like are important to say 
right now? I guess mainly what I, I like for people to know, and I may say it more than once, but is, you know, I'm fighting for Larry Hoover Sr., who's has five life sentences for a nonviolent drug crime. And he's a senior citizen living in an inhumane situation. He's still incarcerated for, for the same crime that multiple individuals have been released from with the same charges. I just want the world to know that we're fighting for our justice system to be fair, because it could be your parent, your brother, your son or your daughter in the same situation. And if the system is made to punish us when we commit crimes or go do something that's against the system, we want it to be a fair system so when the punishment is done, you know, we treat it fairly and we can come back to the world. So, you know, I just want everybody to know that that's what, that's what we're dealing with. Just trying to make sure that things are done fairly and for people to understand what we're fighting against. We're not, we're not fighting against murder. We're not trying to say that, that my father never was a criminal. We're just trying to say that he served his time for the crime that he did and he deserves a, a fair chance at, at life, just like anybody else who may have committed a crime and do their time and get a second opportunity. Thank you so much for um, giving me your time today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, where can people follow you or find out more about you and your story and your advocacy work? Um, well, right now, just Larry Hoover Jr. underscore on Instagram. Then we had a Larry Hoover project, which really deals with my father and uh, prison reform and what have you. And, Geri um, geriatric, um, I can't get the word right, dealing with the old prisoners <laughs> that deserve to be at home. No, that's right. Geriatric reform yeah. is what it is. It's, yeah. um, you know, ensuring that we are giving a second look to people that are elders that are incarcerated because what we're also finding out is that they are becoming a new, huge, like growing population in yeah. the prison system. It's the geriatric community. And like, why? Are they just in there? It's old like, people still in jail. Yeah, yeah, you're just housing people in there for forever. For what? Yeah. Let them out of there. It doesn't make any sense. And we're wasting, this is the thing, we're wasting taxpayer dollars by continuing to keep these people in there when we know that they are not. Yeah, they're done. Yeah, they are not. They are not a, a, a safety factor for our community or for, the, for society. They right. need to come home. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Larry. All I right. appreciate talking to you today. All my life, man, I've been waiting for my father to come home. They told me when I graduate eighth grade, he'll be home. Then they told me when I graduate from high school, he'll be home. I went away to Morris Brown. I graduated, and he still ain't home. Now I'm a dope and my daughter went away to college and graduated. He's still not home. Now even more than that, my son, he graduated eighth grade and we still waiting. Matter of fact, 
He hasn't hugged, kissed, or touched any of his grandchildren, and they haven't been able to touch their grandfather. Even though it is not seen that way for some of us, but for many of us, Larry Hoover is a beacon of hope for his community who deserves to breathe free air. Free my father, Mr. Larry Hoover Sr. Mass incarceration in the U.S. is the great tsunami that has ripped apart families and destroyed communities. At the epicenter of this destruction are the children of those incarcerated. My name is Ebony Underwood. I am the founder CEO of We Got Us Now. We Got Us Now is the first of its kind, national, nonprofit, nonpartisan organization built by, led by, and about children and young adults who have been impacted by parental incarceration. These are our stories. To learn more, to join, to donate, go to wegotusnow.org.